Hey friends, welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. I'm your host, Rick Alexander. If you're getting anything at all from this show, it would mean the world to me if you'd head to iTunes, give us a five-star review, or even just to share the show with your social media following or somebody that you think that the show or message might resonate with. Additionally, I do just want to mention that I have a workshop coming up called Identifying Your Call to Adventure. Also, it comes with a couple extra audio teachings. You can pay whatever you want to be there. It's coming up on August 21st, and if you can't make it, you can still get the recordings. I'll link that up in the show notes of this episode. Without further ado, let's talk about what it feels like when you're forsaken by God. want to begin this by talking about how the genuine spiritual path often revives our capacity to feel. And this is integral to the human experience. And so I think we have to start here. There's so much bound up in this idea. But in the West, at least, which is really all I can speak for, and honestly, I think what's happening now with the with globalization, and whether you think that word is good or bad is doesn't really matter. It's happening, right? We're all connected now via communication platforms and new media outlets. And so cultures are bleeding into other cultures. And what you're seeing around the world is that a lot of Western ideals are being made prevalent in other parts of the world. And if you just think about what it's like to grow up in the West as a post-enlightenment person, not that you would know that, or not that you have to think about that consciously, but you are formed by your culture, like you're embedded in your culture. And it's very, I've said this many times, but it's very difficult to know when you have an idea, for example, like these ideas that I'm talking to you, the ideas of what I want to do with my life. It's like, well, is that you or is that your culture? And the truth is you and your culture bleed into each other because you're embedded within your culture and your culture formed your thought process. So how you think about things, your the way in which you construct your reality is formed by the societal structure that you were born into. And so a lot of the path of individuation, becoming your own person, is actually looking at all of that and realizing what's me and what have I picked up that's not serving me or what have I picked up that asked me to abandon myself, right? That was a lot of the first podcast that we did on this channel. The idea of like finding the water of life for yourself. Well, in order for you to do that, you actually have to revive your capacity to feel. My path into uh, having a spiritual life was very interesting because it, it came through the endurance world. I signed up for a hundred mile race and I didn't make it, by the way. I didn't even train for it, really. I went out there and I had done a 50 miler and I thought that I could get through running a hundred miles without training. Um, I had no idea what I was getting into. And it was in Santa Barbara and it was in the mountains. And I ended up not making a time cutoff at like mile 72. And I ended up with um, bilateral stress fractures in my feet. And I was all messed up for a while. But something interesting happened to me in that race. And when we get these pangs of truth, these nudges that come along and they, they shatter our conscious image of ourself, we have to listen to them, right? You can't deny what becomes conscious for you. When you have a pang of truth, like maybe you're sitting in a job somewhere and you feel that, you know, you get this idea that maybe this isn't, this isn't my job. Like maybe this isn't my path, right? No matter how much you get paid, no matter how 
good it is if spirit has moved away from that place or is leading you somewhere new. You actually have to listen to that because when something becomes conscious for us and we tr- we choose to repress it or drive it back down inside to try not to acknowledge it because it's inconvenient or whatever, right? This is, in the hero's journey, this is the refusal of the call. Well, when we do that, it starts to tear us up from the inside out. So if we get a nudge from the deep, from your soul, for example, and you don't listen to it, then you end up in a you end up at war with yourself fundamentally is what happens. And eventually you either have to listen to it or you self-destruct. And that can take a, a whole host of different ways, right? That's why we escape from our lives, why we cope, all of those different reasons. Well, something happened to me. It was like mile 47, I think, somewhere along there, 48, at an aid station. And this particular race started at night. So it started at 6 p.m. And so it was a, it's called a two moon where you run through the first night and then if you run through the second night and it finishes in the morning. It's a really cool idea. But one of the things that happens when you run at night is that you use a ton of resources. So you're constantly using your focus to a degree that is you know, much more than if you were running at day because you can twist your ankle and there's critters running through the trails. And so your attention is dialed up. And so it uses resources in your body at a quicker rate. And you don't really realize that until you get into it. And so I would say something like one mile of running in the day is equivalent to, I don't know, two or three run, running miles at night, something like that, right? It's just a rough idea. It tires you out quicker because you're using resources, because you're using mental bandwidth and faculties that you wouldn't normally be using. So coming into the next day, I had, I was trashed by mile 48. I was like wrecked. And my uh, girlfriend at the time who was working an aid station just asked me like, hey, how are you doing? And in that moment, I just felt this welling up of emotion. Like I I, I started crying is what happened, but I hadn't cried in so long. I hadn't cried in years, actually. Um, my grandfather's funeral was like the only time in the last like three years that I had cried about anything at all and actually had, had convinced myself, right? Remember, we can't change who we are. We can't change our beliefs, but we can bullshit ourselves, right? We can lie to ourselves. We're masters of self-deception. So we can tell ourselves a, a story over and over and over and, and try to convince ourselves that that's what's real for us, right? And I've talked about this on here before, how I, how actually like I have, you know, quite a big emotional range. I just didn't really know how to access it. And so because it felt unsafe for me, and this is what I'm talking about in Western culture, our emotions do feel unsafe for us because we are post-enlightenment. And so we do prioritize rationalism over almost everything else. So we always are looking for logic, right? And that feels much safer than our emotions, especially when we haven't traversed our emotional capacity, right? When we haven't let ourselves feel. And so what happens oftentimes is we have an experience like, I think a breakup is a really good example where we don't, it kind of hits us like a freight train because we've never had to sit in that kind of suffering before. We've never had to sit in that kind of pain. And so we don't really know how to handle it. Well, I had been convincing myself for years. I was in the military. uh, I had been convincing myself for years that I just didn't feel. I was like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm a sociopath. In most cases, I just try to think about what people with feelings do in that situation. And then I just try to do that. 
I think I've said all this on here before, but it's kind of important to this story. And something happened at mile 48 when she said, how are you? I didn't have any of my coping mechanisms. They were all, they were exhausted. I had exhausted all of them. And this is, for me, I realized that endurance can be a spiritual path for about a million reasons. But one of those reasons is if you exhaust the mask that you wear, if you exhaust your persona, you exhaust your ego, what is it that sits behind that ego, right? What When someone says, hey, how are you? And you say, I'm fine or I'm good but busy or whatever it is, whatever Western trope we use to brush conversation off and keep it at the surface without going too deep. Well, what happens when that gets exhausted, right? When that gets pulled away? What happens is soul is sitting there, right? And your emotional your ability to feel is is directly attached to what's deep and real and true about you. And so what happened is I started crying. I was like, couldn't even answer. I was just like, I, I'm okay, but I don't know why I'm having an emotional reaction right now. And then I, you know, I sat at the aid station for a while and I left. Well, that I talked about that the spiritual path does for you is it revives your capacity to feel. And in the Western world, you know, you're seeing something right now that I think is, this might be a good time to address it. I've been wanting to talk about it on the show for a while. It's like this neo-Stoicism movement, right? So if you are familiar with the Stoics, if you're familiar with Marcus Aurelius, he, he essentially just journaled to himself about how to be in the world from a philosophical standpoint. And that journal ended up getting published and becoming what's what's now known as Marcus Aurelius's meditations, right? It was actually his journal to himself about how best to be here. And I think as humans that we're always asking that question, how do I be here now? And so it's philosophies and spiritual paths and teachings that inform us of other ways of being here. And so he was part of a philosophical movement called Stoicism. And that Stoicism has really been revived because of people like Ryan Holiday who wrote the ego is the enemy and obstacle is the way and a few other um, a few other books. But we have missed something interesting about Stoicism today. Stoicism is about actually realizing that you're part of divine providence, right? And what that means is that no matter what it is that you're going through, no matter what it is that you're feeling or facing, it's actually happening for you because you're part of the whole. And so deep embedded within the Stoic philosophy is that the world is unfolding itself according to a divine plan, to divine providence. And it's useless for you as an individual to try to fight that, to try to argue with that divine providence, because it doesn't do anything besides make your life tougher, right? make your, make your uh, experience here a little bit worse. And so it's actually about learning to roll with those punches. But in the neo-Stoicism movement, that transcendent other isn't necessarily there, right? I've talked about this uh, in the Good King episode I did, how it's really important for us to realize, for us to come into the fullness of our being as finite creatures, for us to be subservient to a transcendent other. And the world's great religions understand that transcendent other as God. And in the Stoicism movement, they understood that as divine providence. Call it whatever you want, but you have to understand the, the limits of your own reality because you have to serve something bigger than yourself because you are a finite creature. And if you don't do that, you take on the, you take on the responsibility of the infinite unconsciously. And what I mean by that is 
the, the plan that's unfolding, that's divine providence, right? And when you try to manipulate reality to get what you want, which is a lot of what we do in the West, you end up in this place where you're taking on the responsibility of God unconsciously. You're deciding what's supposed to happen. You're deciding where it's all going to go. And so I've talked about on here before how the seed of faith, what that is really, right? And if you start to study patterns, you start to realize, oh, reality lays itself out in somewhat of a, of a patterned manner. That's a lot of what I do when I give talks and stuff. I talk about these patterns of reality because if we can be cognizant of them, if we can start to wake up to them, we say, well, this is what's happening to me in my small picture of reality, but I actually can trust that there's a bigger plan unfolding here. And fundamentally, that's faith, right? Faith from the ancient Greek pistis, which means trust. It's a trust in life. It's a trust in divine providence, not unlike the Stoics. Uh, it, It has nothing to do with belief, in the way that we use the word belief now, which is, well, just tell yourself a better story. Okay, so this idea, though, in in our culture today, I think one of the reasons you're seeing Stoicism become so popular is because it's a little bit like disassociating from reality and just telling yourself a better story, right? It's like cutting yourself off from your emotional capacity has become what we consider today to be modern Stoicism. And what I would like to present to you, if you find that the Stoics are something that is a path for you or something that resonates with you, is that actually, even in Stoicism, there's that transcendent other. There is the trust in divine providence. You don't just ignore your problems because you can rise above them or because you can just forget about them. You actually have trust that even though you're going through something that's suffering, that's struggling, you're going through something really tough right now, Well, actually, that's part of it all. It's happening for you in some way. You're not victimized by it. And that's a lot different than sort of disassociating and just leaving it behind and pretending that you don't feel what you feel or repressing or stuffing your emotions down inside. But in the West, as I said, we tend to feel like our emotions are an unsafe place to be. And if you've ever circled the drain of depression, for example, you know how difficult that that is. One of the ideas I present in my talks, and this might be relevant here, is the idea that when we're going through tough times, right, feeling broken, let's say, that moment is just as short-lived as feeling whole. This is something in the East I think they really do well, is capturing the cyclic nature of reality. We go through these seasons. Some of them are good and some of them are are not good. Maybe they're good, but they don't feel good, right? They don't feel good to be a part of. And so what we unconsciously do, especially in the West, because we tend to convince ourselves that we can manipulate our reality. I want to get into that a little bit more. But one of the things that we do in the West is we cling to what we like. We cling to happiness. And we think the goal is to become happier, to be happy more. And then we reject the pain and the suffering. Now, what I would like to present to you is that you don't go through them less. And in fact, you actually probably go through them more when you live in that way. But because they're both short-lived, you can actually have solace that the good times serve a purpose and that the the struggles serve a purpose. And because they're both short-lived, you actually don't want to be happier. You want to improve your relationship with the suffering, right? You actually want to learn how to suffer well because our pain in life and the, the times of suffering bring us immense wisdom if we don't close off from it, right? Something happens 
in uh, actually I heard Traver Bohm. I just gave a talk to his men's group yesterday as of this recording, and he said eight out of ten men who kill themselves do so on the back end of a breakup. I think being we don't really know how to handle being broken up with in our culture because we don't know how to suffer. And what happens is we convince ourselves that we can we can deny our emotions over and over and over for a really long time. And then what happens is that they just push through when something catastrophic happens. There's no more denying them, but because we haven't improved our relationship with them, we don't know how to feel what we feel. We get overtaken by them, right? Our ego, our conscious experience of ourselves gets swallowed by the emotion is what happens. And so in the West, we have this idea that we can just you know, ever upward. It's like this masculine dominant energy. We don't ever have to go down and in, which is more of the feminine dominant energy. It's always up and out. And so we can repress what we feel and we just go forward. And you feel that reflected because like I'll tell you for most of my life, when I would go through a breakup, I would just get drunk and try to have sex with somebody else. Like that was how I would get over it. And I think a lot of people do that. And for you know, I don't want to tell anybody here how to be, but, you know, one of the things you realize when you're going through that is that no matter what, those feelings are going to have to be felt. When my best friend died in Iraq, for example, and it just cast me into hell instantly. Like I felt my whole metaphysical North Arrow was screwed up. I couldn't, my God image didn't make sense anymore. All, all of these things in my reality started just spinning away. I lost coherence is what happens, psychological coherence. And so what I realized though, is when I finally emerged from my house after about a week of crying and throwing up and not knowing how to be here, I got really, I got rip roaring drunk with my friends and we had a blast. We were commiserating and, and pouring one out for my best friend. And something went off in me. I was like, oh, I don't have to feel what I feel. I can be drunk. And so I was. I was drunk for the next eight months or so. Um, and the fact that I kept my job or any of that through that period, if you've read my first book, Burn Your Couch, you, you know all of this. But the fact that I kept my job through that period was just remarkable, to be honest. I mean, I was in the military, so I couldn't be fired. Luckily, I had a decent enough reputation that you know people sort of held space for me to go through what I went through. But one of the things that became obvious is when I realized that I couldn't live this way forever, that I had to sober up, I had to still go through everything that I had, that I was putting off, right? We get these emotions and they have to be felt and released. They can't be denied. They can't be repressed. And so with this neo-stoicism movement, we have this interesting thing where we think that we can just we can stay ahead of our emotions or above our emotions in some way we can go ever onward we can just continue to manipulate our reality so that it makes us happy when actually in those moments in that moment for me for example I actually have to acknowledge that I feel forsaken by life because that's what's actually real for me at the time no matter how uncomfortable it is for other people no matter what right it's what's real for me i feel alone i feel lost i feel forsaken which is going to be important as we move forward but you eventually realize all of that's going to have to be felt whether or not you allow yourself to acknowledge it or not now the second option when you go through a breakup actually is to let your heart actually break right because what happens when you allow yourself to feel what you feel and this is where right therapists are helpful coaches are helpful mentors are helpful people that can keep you tethered to reality right and mirror back to you that you're still a real person and that it's okay to feel what you're feeling 
Well, one of the things that happens when you go through that experience and you allow your heart to break is that it opens. And when your heart opens, your ability to feel is increased. And what that means, because look, your ability to feel doesn't discriminate whether it's positive or negative. See, this is why you can't put walls up and still find love because the walls keep you in as much as they keep anybody else out. And so when you put the walls down and you learn how to stabilize yourself and feel safe in what you're feeling, and when that feeling is heartbreak, your heart breaks open. And next time you find yourself in a position where you are loving somebody, your ability to do so is deeper, right? You actually, you actually can love them more. Another way you can do this, right, is if you realize, okay, I've had walls up for a very long time. And I don't really know how to be there for this person, right? So let's say you fall in love with somebody and you feel like, man, there's a part of me that doesn't, I can't love them properly. Like, I don't know. I think men feel this a lot. Like, I don't know how to just feel what I feel. I don't know how to, how to go to you with this intimacy and this depth. Well, it's the recognition of that that can break your heart open so that you can go deeper. It's actually feeling that you cannot reach the, the person that you love the most, that they're at, they're at a depth that's, that's somehow beyond you. You feel like you've put a ceiling over yourself and your capacity to feel. And so it's, allow, it's being with that, right? It's being with the coming up short of not being able to give the person you love the most what you know that they deserve, which breaks your heart, which opens it, which gives you the capacity to love them at the level in which they deserve. So you see, we have to feel what we feel. We have to be real about what's coming up for us, whether we deem it positive or negative. And so today, what I wanted to talk about is the crucifixion and the Christ myth, because in, well, let me, let me go there with you, right? Because I've never seen a sermon on this, which is interesting, right? We tend to do the sermons you know, if you, if you go to church, you'll tend to see sermons that are going to like cooperate our Western ideals and our picture of reality. And in our picture of reality, we try to deny suffering often, right? This is why Stoicism, I think, is becoming so popular because it's like, oh, rather than feel what I feel, actually, I just have permission to not. And actually, that makes me virtuous and noble in some ways. If I can just repress it, then what I can do when other people are emotion emotional is I can just sort of make them feel invalid for having an emotional experience, right? And that's called gaslighting. And we see it all over our culture today. Well, in Mark, there's this point where Jesus is about to die. He's he's been crucified. And it's Mark 33. says, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Very uh, mythical motif that's happening right here. Because, I mean, when you're in darkness, you can't see, right? And so when you can't see, you stumble around, you trip and you fall. And so when we're going through these really tough times in life, it's as if we're in darkness, right? This is the symbolism that's being uh, placed right here. And then Jesus says something that theologians have been puzzling over forever. In Mark 34, he says, at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm curious whether you ever have allowed yourself to feel forsaken, whether you've ever allowed yourself to feel what you actually feel as a finite creature broken off from the whole feels forsaken by the light. I want to talk about this a little bit. Remember, I can't remember which episode now, but remember I gave, I talked a little bit about the difference between Cartesian way of knowing and experiential or religious knowing. The Cartesian way of knowing, 
course, post-enlightenment, is based off Descartes. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And so he's conflating the thinking function and the being function. But actually, it's really important to understand that being and thinking are different phenomena altogether. In fact, the Eastern religions teach us this, right? They teach us that you can actually let go of all of your thinking function over and over and over and over. And as you do, you don't end up in a place where you cease to exist. Actually, what happens is you find this empty joy that exists. You touch God. And in that moment, you step into the fullness of who you really are, right? You take your little mind off and you put on what in Zen they call big mind once you touch that emptiness. And that happens as you reduce and let go of your intellectual questioning. This is another reason why the does God exist question is so, you know, it's the intellect is asking a question that the intellect can't answer because being and thinking, being and knowing, they're different phenomena. Even though in the West, we pride ourselves on our ability to think. And so the Cartesian way of knowing, as I said before, is what I have to do is I actually just have to arrange all the things that I think about correctly, and then I get to know. And so that's what you see. You see these apologetics arguments where people are fighting about whether or not God exists and they're trying to do it through the intellect, right? And they're like, well, if I just arrange all of the things I believe, all my presuppositions and my a priori statements correctly, well, then I get to know because being and knowing are the same thing. And so all I have to do is I have to just try to know right. I have to know correctly. And we have such an intellectually heavy tradition in the West, because we're on the back of Enlightenment and because we're on the back of Descartes. It's really important to know, though, that the thinkers of the Enlightenment at that time actually broke thinking and being into different phenomena so that they could have freedom to, to explore their own thoughts because the church was persecuting them at the time. And so that's, that's really important to know because that's not the case anymore, right? We don't have to think in these segregated ways. If you look at Kant, if you look at Descartes, a lot of what they were doing was trying to separate their philosophies from a religious phenomena so that they could explore them freely. And you see, this is what's responsible for, well, there's a couple of, I mean, there's a lot of symptoms of this, but you can see a couple of them, right? One is we have a lot of clergy that talk a lot, but don't necessarily live in alignment with what it is that they teach. They're not an embodiment of the truth. They're not incarnating the divine, right? This is true in the Catholic scandals and in the Protestant scandals of the last like 200 years with sexual assault and all of the deviancy that takes place, right? Because being and knowing are different phenomena. So I can get up on Sunday and I can talk about something and I don't have to embrace embody it. And one time I heard a pastor say something I thought was so genius. He was like, listen, if you get up there and you say something that you're not in alignment, it's going to ruin your soul. It's going to tear you apart from the inside out. And I think that's true, but we have to start realizing that the intellect can't save us, right? The intellect, the knowing, that's the stories we tell ourselves, they're not enough. We have to feel reality in our bones. We have to be the ones that actually incarnate the divine, if we want to get the fruit of these stories. This is also why I would say that in our culture, in our country, this is why we have such a problem with overthinking, right? We're always trying to think our way out of the scenario, even though we can't, right? Because our lives are a combination of thinking and acting, right? We think about something and we have that function. It's a gift of being. It's not being itself. We think about something and then we act it out 
and we wait for reality's feedback and then we reflect on that and then we tailor our behavior and then we continue to act. But what we do is we get stuck in these cycles of overthinking. And so we are convinced that we can think our way out of things, that we can, we just have to know the right thing and then I'll be free of this scenario, this problem. And it's like, no, that's not true. You have to live your way out of it. Well, the religious or experiential way of knowing is actually, no, you have to go there to know. You have to go through the transformation and the gift you get for having gone through it in a forthright manner is the knowing, is the insight. But it's not an intellectual knowing. It's an intuitive embodied knowing. You know it in your bones when you go through a transformation, right? This is the problem with asking what is my purpose, right? The problem with asking what is my purpose is that most people are sitting on the sidelines of their life and they say, what's my purpose? If I know, then I'll just go do that thing. And so they're like, well, I just need to know. I just need to know what my purpose is and then I'll go there. It's like, no, that's not how it works actually. Actually, you follow what's emerging within you. You go seek the water of life for yourself and for having gone into the underworld, into the abyss, through the death and the rebirth process, the gift you get for having done that is deeper insight into what the hell you're doing here and why it all mattered in the first place, right? And so with experiential knowing, you're actually in a symbiotic relationship with life. And as you go deeper, the meaning of your life is revealed in ever deepening ways. And so you have to, that's why you have to go on your hero's journey, right? Oh, by the way, shameless plug on the 21st, I am doing a workshop on identifying your call to adventure because I think sometimes we don't it's like, well, which way do I go? Where am I being called? The truth is life is always inviting us into deeper and deeper meaning, but we've got to answer, we've got to learn to answer the invitation. And often that's an unlearning, that's an unknowing from all of the ways that we've learned to be here in the past, right? I've said it before, but we spend the first two or three decades of our life, like learning how to get belonging and how to fit in and how to deny our emotions and how to find more happiness. And then at some point, right? We reach this point somewhere around 28 years old, I think, 28 to 35, typically, not always, typically, where we realize, actually, I really want to know why the hell I'm here. Like, I'm not happy with this surface level life anymore. I actually want to know the depth. But the thing to know is that you have to revive your capacity to feel, which means you have to feel what it is that you actually feel. I talk a lot to my clients and just to people about being vulnerable. And as I, the way that I describe vulnerability is allowing what's real for you to come forward, to be what's real for you. There's an intense amount of pressure not to do that, by the way, right? I mean, just look out in the world right now and ask yourself, what happens if what's real for me isn't what's real for society? How's that gonna go for people? Especially if I stand on my truth right now, how's the collective going to handle that? I'll let you decide. But what I've found is that there's not a lot of incentive to find your own truth, to follow what's emerging for you and what's real for you. So you have to learn how to do this. You have to learn how to revive your capacity to feel. One of the things I talk about in my men's course, I think it's the worst kind of hell. And I think most men in Western culture, many men in Western culture, let me say, are suffering from this. And this is when you are surrounded by goodness in every direction and you're unable to taste it. So you have the wife and you have the dog, the kids, the dogs, the cars, the house, and you're miserable and you don't know why. Well, what's interesting about that is the first 
way, the first step in starting to find your way back to meaning, back to a meaningful life, to find the water of life for yourself, is actually acknowledging that that exists and you don't know why. See, because what happens when you say, I'm miserable, I don't know why, and I'm helpless to do anything about it, is that you're acknowledging that the ego has just reached its limitations and its ability to do anything at all, right? Because this is what has to happen. The ego is eventually going to have to make room for soul to come forward, for what's deep, what's real, what's essential. Remember your essence, what's essential about you to come forward. And that is where you're going to find meaning. But it starts by allowing yourself to feel what you feel, by actually admitting that all of your models of reality, all of the ways, again, you know, we're always constructing models of reality. How do I be here now? How do I become more popular? How do I get the love interests that I'm interested in? How do I get the material safety that I need? All of those models of reality that have worked up till now aren't going to work to get you to soul. This is the this is the same idea that's coming forward in the sinner's prayer, if you've ever heard that. You, you might have heard it if you grew up in a Catholic church or, or some evangelical strains will talk about it. It's basically, dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Now, look, if you can't get on board with that language, no worries, but let's talk about what's happening there. What's happening there is that the ego function, right? Ego, your conscious experience of yourself, is coming to grips with the realization that it's useless to fix itself, to help itself, right? You have to realize that all of these patterns of reality that you've used to keep your safe, yourself safe, all of the ways in which you've denied your emotions in the past to try to cling to more happiness or grasp at more happiness, none of that's going to work. Now, you have to, there's a philosophical shift that has to take place for this to make sense for you too. And so if it doesn't, I totally get it. In the West, we have what's called tabula rosa. In, in, Latin, what tabula rosa means is blank slate. It's like the idea is that we come into this world as a blank slate. And so we just make our meaning. We make ourselves. We can do whatever we want. We can be whoever we want. And that's sort of one of the philosophical underpinnings that's driving the post-enlightenment expansion into the West, right? And so we inherit a lot of that. So you've probably heard it before. But that's not what I believe, actually. I believe that you're, you have an internal constitution, right? That's directly connected to your soul. And it's going to make demands of your life. And if you don't listen to those demands, then your conscience, right? Your Christ within, the spokesperson for your soul, is going to tell you, you just betrayed yourself. You're not here for that. That's not your path. And so, again, then what happens is you end up at war with yourself over and over and over. And so one of the things that happens is we get deep into our lives and we say, well, I don't really know who I am. I don't really know what I want. One of the reasons is because we've been, we've been walking away from ourselves for so long that you're right. You don't know who you are. And so it is the admittance of that, right? This is what I'm talking about. It's the admittance of, wow, I think my ego function has taken me as far as I can go and I am helpless to help myself from here on out. And as the little mind moves out of the way, then big mind can take over, right? And that's what the spiritual path does. It's actually weaning you off of all of the ways that you've convinced yourself that you can control and manipulate reality to show you that you don't have to. And that's surrender.
Once you let go of your own desires, and this is what Jesus meant when he said, look, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. It's like, yeah, that's, that is letting go of your own desires for your life. I want money. I want rich, you know, whatever it is that you want, all the material things that it tends to be that you convince yourself you want. And what's amazing on that path is that it leads you into a more full expression of who you actually are. So if you knew what you really wanted and you were to relinquish control, you would find that that's what you got. But the problem is we can we cling to this idea that we can be whatever we want, we can make ourselves whatever it is we want, the ego can do everything. Um, and because of that, we continue down the wrong path. And so when you do something, and now we're getting into the meat of this episode and why it's important, when you do something and the conscience speaks up and you feel guilt, you actually want to lean into that. You actually want to allow yourself to feel what you feel. This is one of the reasons why escapisms are, I say this in my talk, but one of the reasons why escapisms are one, so uh, popular today and two, so damn unhelpful, right? It's popular because it allows you to try to get above that conscience. It's telling you like, hey, you just betrayed yourself. This isn't your path. You actually want to lean into that moment, right? You actually want to lean into what you're feeling because it's divine. It's a message from the divine telling you this isn't it for you. If you were a blank slate, you'd be able to shake that feeling. You know, just take any struggle that you've struggled with for a long time. The one I tend to talk openly about is porn because I struggled with it and um, it was hell to move, to work through that struggle. But the first thing that made it, that really gave me a shot at not feeling like I was gripped by this compulsion and by this addiction was allowing myself to feel grateful for the guilt that was coming through when I did it. Because imagine if you didn't have the guilt, right? Now imagine this scenario where you don't have that guilt and you just are allowed to pursue what's not good for you, what doesn't serve you all the way to your own destruction, right? That would be hell. That is hell on earth fundamentally, right? When your heart and your mind, your body and your mind are in different places entirely. Your body has deep wisdom about who you are and what you're doing here. That's why when you get on the spiritual path, you're intellect, your knowing changes from an intellect to what I said is an embodied intuitive knowing. It's I know this to be true in my bones, right? I start to remember who I really am and what I'm really doing here. And this is what the world's great religions are, are meant for. They're meant to give you a path to show you that. Now, let's move back to this point on the cross where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you feel, I'm going to take this psychologically, right? Because this is our road in. If you really want to understand a lot of these mythical motifs and how they're happening, that your psychology, your perception, your everyday experience of the world is your way to touch them. It's your way to feel them in your own life because you're living them out over and over. So let me give you an example. Let's say you have a habit that you're wanting to kick because you know it's not serving you, right? You might think about this. I wrote about in my second book that this is something like a demon, right? A demon is something that takes possession of you. And as it does, it leaves you with less and less of your essence and it takes from you, right? So it's stealing your soul. And this is what you feel that go meet somebody who's living on the streets who has really succumbed to a really bad drug addiction, right? They're a shell of who they used to be, right? A demon has gotten them for all intents and purposes as far as like a mythical motif because it has actually taken their essence from them. Now, I don't think the divine spark can ever be fully 
uh, put out. I think that's important to acknowledge. But let's just talk about that process for a minute. So you have something that's not serving you. It's taking away from your essence. When you do it, the, the Christ within, your conscience speaks up and says, this isn't your path, this isn't for you. Well, then you say, okay, so I'm going to acknowledge that guilt. I'm going to feel that guilt completely. Remember, we have to change our paradigm here. We have to feel what we feel. It's the only way out. We can't not feel the bad feelings and think that we're going to be able to kick the, the habit. It's just not going to be possible. Um, this is why rock bottom actually changes people, actually, right? Because in rock bottom scenarios, there's no faking it anymore. All of the exterior ways that you've inflated yourself and convinced yourself you're fine have been stolen away from you. They've been taken. It's a grace. Suffering, you could see as the way that we're laying it out here, is a grace because it's what leads you home. Because it, it's the road signs telling you this isn't it for you. And so you feel the guilt. And then a week later, you're like, okay, I want to do that again. Okay. Now, as you have that feeling, you say, well, I'm not going to do it this time. Now what's happening is you're starting to be crucified, right? You're going to feel as if, now if you go through that over and over, I want to do this, I'm not going to do this. I want to do this, I'm not going to do this. If you go through that over and over, anybody that's really pushed through a, a deep uh, dopaminergic pathway, like a dopamine addiction, I mean, is going to have felt that, right? Because dopamine, it, you know, whatever it is, whether it's social media, porn, you know, drugs, whatever your thing is, whatever lights your dopamine sensor up, it doesn't just make you feel intense pleasure. It actually motivates you to go get that pleasure again. This is what it means to be at war with yourself, right? And so what happens is you say, I'm not going to do it and I want to do it. I'm not going to do it and the craving comes up. I'm not going to do it and, the cra and it gets harder and harder. The craving gets stronger. The dopaminergic pathway is telling you, go get that damn thing, right? Go get what gave you that intense pleasure. And you say, well, it's not serving me, so I'm not going to do it. And if you go through that over and over and over, you're being crucified, right? Psychologically, this is the crucifixion. Now, there's something that happens in that moment, if you keep doing that over and over, where it feels like you're never getting out. And, and I, I wanna be dead ass honest about this because this is fundamental to the human experience. It feels like nothing is ever going to deliver you. Like you are going to be in this struggle for the rest of your life. And it feels like there is no light there is no light at the end of the tunnel. That's why in this story, it's dark everywhere. This feeling of being forsaken is fundamental to the human experience because you are a finite creature broken off from the absolute and you feel it. You feel forsaken by your God, by your family, by your life, by whatever it is because you don't feel connected to anything. You feel disconnected. You feel vulnerable. And that's what the crucifixion is, right? Think about the way it splays the arms open. You're naked. You're being shamed. You're being put down, right? This is what's happening in the story. And this is what it starts to feel like. It's like almost the ultimate act of vulnerability. It's, it's the thing that all of us definitely do not want to go through to its possible extent, right? We all hate shame. We all hate being laid bare. Think about the dream, uh, the, the common reoccurring dream that scares the hell out of people that they're like giving a talk in front of their school or a speech and they look down and they're naked. It's that ultimate vulnerability. This is what's being symbolized in the crucifixion. And so what happens is as you start to hold that tension, it gets worse and worse and worse. If anybody's tried to kick a habit, you 100% know what I'm saying right now. It feels like it's tearing you apart from the inside out. You have to hold on because there's a, there's a psychological concept called the transcendent function. 
And what the transcendent function says is that if you hold the tension of opposites for long enough, eventually a symbol is going to come forward and it's going to lead you out of there. It's going to lead you forward. Ascension, right? This is the resurrection. This is the ascension. And so what happens, why most people don't evolve in their life, I might have said this before, is because they can't resolve the tension within themselves. They can't do it. They meet the tension. I want to do it. I'm not going to do it. I want to do it. Okay, I'm going to do it, right? They end up caving to the tension, caving to that feeling because it feels like it's, if, I mean, if it's a real dopamine, if the hooks of that dopaminergic pathway are in you, it feels like it's pulling you apart from both directions. And what happens is you have to let that happen. You have to actually allow that to be what's real. You cannot deny what you feel. You can't escape what you feel. I mean, you can, right? But you're going to have to go back through the process of building that tension again. And look, it's a process, right? So some of us do it for a while and then we backslide and th th that's just how, how it goes, right? The ego is being pilloried in both directions and it feels like it's being split in two. But eventually, if you can hold that tension long enough, if you can acknowledge what you really feel, which maybe is being forsaken in that moment, if you feel forsaken by life in some real and substantive way because it feels like, you know, it feels like bullshit, I think is the best way I can put it. Like, why am I in this position? Why do I have to deal with this? How am I subject to this? Allow yourself to feel what you feel and eventually a symbol comes forward. It leads you forward. You're able to resolve that tension in yourself and then you ascend to a higher level of consciousness. Your consciousness becomes more complex and you become a more full version of yourself. Soren Kierkegaard said the most common form of despair is not being who you really are. He's one of my favorite thinkers, theologians, philosophers of all time. But there's something really deep and really real about that. And the truth is, when you start to feel that tension, if you escape, if you continue to walk away from yourself, that's you're, you're, you're getting deeper into the depth of despair because you're going to keep getting that signal from that internal conscience, from that Christ within telling you, this isn't your path. You're still going the wrong way. And eventually what happens is when you decide to listen to that voice and you decide to go through the pain and you realize, look, no matter how intense the suffering gets, no matter how bad it gets, they can't get to your heart. This is what, this is actually like the deeper truth about this kind of thing, right? Is that they can't actually change you. They can kill you even, but they cannot get to your heart. They cannot get to your soul. They cannot get to what's essential about you. Only you can give that away. It's one of the deepest truths on the spiritual path that you'll eventually find out if you continue to, you know, walk it, I think. And then you get to a point where once you come to that realization that it's only me that can leave it, it's only me that can leave the absolute, it's only me that can leave what's real, it's only me that can put the mask on, then you start to reclaim your power. And these things that are feeling like they're pulling you apart from the inside out actually lose their ability to do so. They lose their grip on you slowly but surely. And eventually something comes forward which, which allows you to resolve the tension within yourself and so what that means is you're not at war with yourself, at least on that level of reality and that struggle. And that is what's called atonement. So you've probably heard this as a theological theme in, before, in, whether it's in Christian circles or not. 
what atonement means is at one mint, right? And so this is coming back into reconciliation with yourself and with reality at large. And this is what I would say is the is is what's waiting for this is the ultimate goal of the spiritual path, right? This is what's symbolized, right? We try to flatten these things. Like we in Christianity it's the most flat, right? It's this literalism. Say the right words. Jesus will forgive you, and then you'll be atoned for your sins. He went and died for you, and then you are in reconciliation with the ultimate, and you get to go to heaven. Well, let's look at that symbolically. That's exactly what I just laid out, except the responsibility is on you to incarnate the divine, right? The responsibility is on you to be psychologically crucified, to go through the pain, the vulnerability, to allow yourself to actually feel forsaken. And if you do that, then you will find yourself ascending, resolving the tension, going into atonement. And when you're in that place, that's heaven. Atonement with reality, reconciliation with your life is as good as it gets in this plane of existence. You know, in the West, we often feel like I'm the wrong person. This is what I wrote about in my my second book. I feel like I'm the wrong person in the wrong life, doing the wrong thing. And maybe it would be better if I was that person. And social media has thrown gasoline on this, this comparison complex that we have. Well, maybe if I were doing what that person, they're living an exciting life, maybe if I were them, it would be better. And so we're always plagued by this feeling of wrong person, wrong place, wrong time. Meaning, the feeling of a meaningful life, which is what you get from experiential knowing, from going through the thing, from not abandoning your value system, from going through the pain of what it takes to not abandon your value system, even when your biology, even when society is trying to pull you away from it. The gift you're getting, you're given is the insight as to why it all matters. And then you get the influx of meaning And what meaning says is that in this universe, which extends in 93 billion light years in every direction, you are in the exact right place at the exact right time. You are the exact right person. That's what it means to incarnate the divine. That's what it means to find heaven. And that's what you get if you allow yourself to feel what you feel and you go through the struggles for real. So put this out there just to say it's not arbitrary. You know, the things you're struggling with, they're not arbitrary. They're happening for you. They're a bit of a grace. It's easy to say that when you're not struggling. I totally want to acknowledge that. But I also want to acknowledge that that doesn't make it less true. You know, the thing about the truth is that it's still true even when it sucks to swallow or hurts to acknowledge. You know, it's so funny in theological circles. One of the reasons you never hear a sermon on this particular scripture is because people are trying to work out in their minds like, well, if he's God, I mean, how could God be forsaken by God? And no, that's not the myth. The myth is that he's fully God and fully human. And that matters because what he's going through is one, the meeting point of the divine in the physical realm, the divine in humanity. And two, he wouldn't be fully human if he weren't forsaken. Do you see, as finite creatures who have been broken off from the whole, we are the multitude who crave wholeness, who seek wholeness, and that's why we reach for light. That's why we reach for God in our spiritual path. But it's fundamental to the human existence to feel broken off, to feel forsaken by the absolute, to feel completely disconnected from love. And so when that comes up for us, we just got to acknowledge it's part of the human experience and it's real. For thousands of years, people have looked at this Jesus story to give them strength while they were in their struggles. Uh, there was a 
in the Middle Ages, there was this painting of Jesus. I'm going to totally butcher this story. I'm not going to give details because I'll butcher him if I try. But <laughs> I learned about it in a theology class. But there was this painting of Jesus and these people would send, there was a sickness that, that essentially gave you sores all over your body. We've, we've since cured it, but it was an excruciating way to live. It made it, made you really like really tough to look at. And so you were sort of cast away, kind of like lepers back in, in, in like biblical times. And so when those people would come down with this disease, like it's pretty grim, it's a pretty grim outlook for you. You're going to suffer slowly for a long time and then you're going to die. And they would send them to this monastery and in this monastery, there's this three-panel huge picture of Jesus, but he was on the cross, but he was suffering. Like he, he had all the same marks on him, so as if he was suffering from that same disease. And they would once a day or twice a day come before this picture, and they would gain strength from looking at this and praying to this Jesus who's sharing in their suffering. Right? And that, all of that, why that strengthened them, why that gave them so much hope, why that was able to alleviate some of their pain in the last years of their lives is for all of the reasons that I just talked about. Because this story, these these motifs, they're happening now and they're happening inside of you. They're happening every time you struggle, every time you decide to stay the course or not stay the course. You're making decisions and this this story shows you where those decisions end up. They show you something about what it really means to be human. And here's the here's the power of myth, right? Based on that story that I just told you. It's like, imagine that you're suffering and I'm like, well, hey, just, um, you know, picture the absolute and the absolute loves you as much as you could possibly be loved and there's a point to all this and you can't see it. It's like all of that falls on deaf ears, right? Because we're finite creatures and so for us to have infinite conceptions is really, really difficult. This tells you a little bit about why we fight over them actually. But you need a particular in order to resonate with, in order to find self in, right? To find your own identity in. And so the idea, there's like a deep evolution of God image for the world in this Jesus story because the idea was not this infinite thing that you can't conceptualize and let I me mean, quite literally can't conceptualize because it breaks your limits of conception and you can't relate to. No, it's teaching you something of the boundless love of God with the idea that God would actually come suffer with you and you find yourself in that story because you too are of the nature to suffer to use a Buddhist line. You're of the nature to get sick and to die. And so to have something that that allows you to find yourself and create meaning of that experience in is intensely powerful. And I want to say this final thing about the, I, the feeling of being forsaken by God, because there was a moment where I was sitting in a theology class and I had been getting pangs of like, I don't know that this is my path. I don't know that this particular religious tradition is going to be able to hold my curiosity and my my soul, for lack of a better term. And there was a point where the professor had said something about, I think the line he used was the existential ground of being. And I had just, in my journal, like I think the week before or something, I had made, I had had this insight about the nature of God and I had wrote those exact words. And so when he said it, he was like, hey, do you guys know what I mean? Like the existential ground of being. And I was like, oh, yeah, I actually think I do know what you mean, right? So I kind of got excited. 
And then he started laughing and I realized that actually <laughs> he was making fun of me. He was like, that doesn't mean anything, you see? And I realized in that moment, I was like, oh, if you think like I do, you're actually the joke in this place, right? He was sort of trashing the mystical tradition. I had to sit with that and then it was coming to the recognition that, okay, this isn't my path, but I obviously think I followed something into this path. I, you know, I'm not, I don't think that this is just ego that drove me into seminary by any, by any stretch of the imagination. And it was the realization of feeling forsaken by my path, forsaken by God, that I actually had to go through. And the reason being is because when I did, I could allow that simpler God image to die for me. And as it did die, which was incredibly painful, like the feeling of being forsaken by your life and your path is incredibly painful, no doubt about it. But as I did, I realized that it was making room for something more real to take place, something more me, more authentic in my path to take its place. Again, this stuff isn't arbitrary. These mythical themes teach us something very deep and very real about what it means to be here and what it means to be human. Yeah.